4: Welcome to
2: Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, for part two of our Armchair Psychology Week, Kristen and I are talking about passive-aggressive behavior slash really... Having some come-to-Jesus thoughts as we research for this episode, um, I selfishly requested that we cover the passive-aggressive topic because I myself have struggled with passive-aggressive behavior in the past. I'm supposed to say it like that, according to my therapist, not just that I am passive-aggressive. Well,
4: I'm really relieved to hear you say that, Caroline, because it could have also been that you selfishly wanted to do this podcast (laughs) so as to better learn how to deal with passive-aggressive people you might podcast with, because this research also was very eye-opening for me as well in terms of my communication style, my conflict resolution style, particularly when it comes to relationships, and... One thing we're going to focus on, too, is this idea that women are more passive aggressive than men. It's a pretty common stereotype. Uh, Google will autofill it for you <laughs> if you start searching around. So we wanted to find out what passive aggressive behavior really is, mm-hmm. where it comes from, whether in fact it is more of a female gendered behavior and how to deal with it, both in other people and also in yourselves and ourselves personally. Caroline and I are really learning a lot this week on the podcast. We
2: are. I know between OCD and OCPD and now PA... Passive-aggressive behavior. But what what is it? What is it exactly? Uh, passive-aggressive behavior is a pattern of indirectly expressing negative feelings instead of just openly addressing them. There ends up being this disconnect between what a passive-aggressive person is saying and what she ends up doing. So, for instance,
4: when my fiancé says, Is it fine if I clean the bathroom tomorrow instead? And my response is, Yeah, sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, it's fine. I mean, you know what? I'll I'll actually just do it because that's fine.
2: <laughs> that that is passive aggressive. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, there are so many of those examples that I feel like will crop up throughout this episode because I myself also have a lifetime of them. Okay, so what does it look like beyond just telling your fiancé or your roommate or whoever, oh, no, that's fine. I'll just do it myself. Um, Well, it involves resentment and opposition to the demands of other people, particularly to just routine work and social tasks. And so this involves a lot of kind of uh, on-purpose foot-dragging. So procrastination, you might even insert intentional mistakes in response to other people's demands because the key here is that passive-aggressive people view just like simple requests or obligations or work tasks as super serious, awful demands. This also reminds me, Caroline,
4: of one of my favorite scenes in the classic summer camp film, Wet Hot American Summer, (laughs) in which Paul Rudd's character is asked to pick up something that he left on the table in the cafeteria or, like, throw away his trash or something very simple like that. And his, like, full-bodied like dragging response of like (laughs) flailing around and taking so much unnecessary time just to do that simple task is such a perfect satirized example of passive aggressive behavior. Just like, Oh, are you kidding? I can't, Throw away the trash. Yep.
2: I know. I love that. And it is the perfect physical embodiment of this example. And, uh, I am excited to get more into this episode because we are going to talk about where that, like, resentment of demands comes from. But let's continue talking about what passive aggressive behavior looks like. It also includes things like vacillating wildly between hostile defiance and contrition. So almost like you're realizing with the logical part of your brain, like, oh, I kind of seemed like a jerk just then. It also could include, you know, we mentioned that on purpose foot dragging. It also includes a cynical, sullen or hostile attitude. So you might just act dense on purpose or perhaps defend an indefensible position or fact or opinion just for the sake of doing so. But it could also include and this is where it gets a little real, Kristen. Yeah, it could also include the withdrawal of support presence or attention. And this is sort of the the crossing your arms and saying fine and walking away. I, in my relationships, have been super guilty of this, where if somebody does something and I don't agree with it or it makes me feel bad or I think there's a better way, etc., etc., on and on, I might just, you know, Go to the other room and be like, hmm, fine. Okay. No. A little a little bit of the silent treatment. A little bit of the silent treatment. And I, I'm actively working on getting better, uh about having those direct conversations, but I'm not perfect. It's it's progress, not perfection. And I will
4: say too, Caroline,
2: since we are being sort of uncharacteristically candid uh-huh. in
4: this podcast episode, listeners might might be a little weirded out right now. Um but I will say that the acting dense Ring a bell with me in terms of relationships where you do the passive aggressive behavior can turn into you playing dumb, which turns the situation around on the other person to put them in the position of being on the offense. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you're the poor little victim playing defense and just asking asking questions that really can't be answered because the truth is, you know, the answers already. And in addition to these kinds of things, passive-aggressive behavior can also include frequent complaints about feeling underappreciated or cheated. This includes envious attitudes and behaviors toward people who seem more fortunate. There is also, too, gossiping and other pot-stirring tactics to turn opinion against someone. And this reminds me also of our slut-shaming podcast.
2: For sure. Well, not only our slut-shaming podcast, but a lot of this also reminds me of the episode we did on Shine Theory, talking about female friendship and and good versus bad motivations for a kind of aligning yourself with someone, basically. But, yeah, it's that effort to sort of hide your own envious or jealous or insecure feelings and behavior by putting the focus on someone else and saying, look at what they're doing wrong. Uh, trying to turn opinion against that person in favor of yourself. And one really casual, kind of charming sometimes way to do that is through the use of sarcastic jokes. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably guilty of that myself. Uh, as with a lot of this stuff that I'm trying to get better at. Um, but part of all of this too is that passive aggressive people tend to be super sensitive and hyper alert to any nuances. They're, they're looking for hidden meanings that Somebody could be saying something or doing something that is negative towards them.
4: So this grab bag of passive aggressive behaviors makes it pretty clear why passive aggression has such a wretched reputation, because it is a pretty wretched and unhealthy and cyclical set of things that we can do. Mm hmm. But why? Why do people use passive aggression? Uh, we found a lot of insight in a column by Signe Whitson over at Psychology Today. It kind of walks through a number of reasons why passive aggressive behavior becomes a crutch. And one of the big things is the fact that anger, just expressing your anger outright is often socially unacceptable. And I will say particularly for women.
2: Yeah. And along those same lines, being indirectly aggressive or passive aggressive is easier than just being assertive. I mean, this is a thing being assertive and not being a jerk, just saying what you feel or what you think, or just stating an opinion that's not always easy for a lot of people. And that's something that you really have to be taught from a young age, how to express yourself without trampling over someone else's thoughts or feelings in the process. Or risk being perceived as, say, bossy. Yeah, things like that. yeah exactly. There's so many nuanced gendered things in this whole passive aggressive package. Um, it's also used a lot because it's so easily justified and rationalized. Kristen, kind of what you were saying earlier about turning things around on the the person, it's like uh, you can cast yourself as the victim and blame your failures on someone else's "quote unquote" unreasonable demands. You know, if mom asks you to make your bed, you can somehow turn it around into being like, "Well, nothing I ever do is good enough. Apparently, I can't, you know, do my chores well enough for you. You, you can't understand how stressful my life is. I have right. a test coming up. Right? Exactly. And an- <laughs> another kind of icky." aspect of passive aggressive behavior and motivations behind it is that passive aggressive people tend to uh, enjoy the revenge aspect. They use tactics that are designed to sort of get back at a person that they perceive as making unreasonable demands on them, but without anyone detecting the underlying anger. So it's not that I'm like going to, you know, saw part of the leg of your chair off so that when you sit down and it, it falls over. <laughs> I don't know why Thank that came you. to
4: Yeah. So Thank I'm- you for not doing that to me.
2: I wouldn't do that, but uh I mean, in general, not just in this example, Kristen, don't worry. But someone who is passive-aggressive might call out sick, for instance, when they feel that their boss is making too many demands on them. And that might end up sabotaging the boss's deadlines, and then the boss gets in trouble. But you look completely innocent because you were just out sick. After all, people are making all sorts of demands on you. You deserve a day off. Well, and that example with the boss is a perfect segue to how...
4: Passive-aggressive behavior can also bestow this false sense of power because... When wielded artfully, you are in
2: control of the situation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when other people experience this cognitive dissonance of being like, wait, I'm not really sure what's going on. You seem innocent, like you're not angry or doing anything to hurt me. But I feel like I'm being hurt or something's wrong. That puts you in control of a whole other person's feelings and emotions. Now. Passive aggressive behavior can help avoid costly confrontations, for instance, in a work setting, you know, where you can't or you feel that you can't be outright assertive. But I mean, think about those people at work at various jobs you've had or various classes you've taken over the course of your lifetime Even if passive-aggressive behavior helps avoid a costly conflict, it's still icky. It's still somebody making a joke like, hey, Bob, so you couldn't stop drinking early enough last night to get into work on time? It's like, okay, well, what are you really saying with that comment? What you're really doing is criticizing a coworker or a classmate for behavior that you don't approve of to make sure that they know that you don't approve of it.
4: Yeah, instead of just saying, Bob, could you come to work on time? Right. Please. And maybe start showering because... (laughs) There's an odor now on a deeper level too, passive aggressive behavior might also be rooted in a, a caution, a fear of failure and embarrassment. It's establishing kind of a layer between you and a potential hazard that you might see, whether that is some kind of confrontation where you risk being reprimanded or being called out um, or the risk, say, in a relationship scenario of Putting yourself out there and feeling vulnerable of expressing your emotions and saying, hey, this actually hurt my feelings. And this is this is me being really vulnerable in this moment. And instead, you kind of protect yourself and be passive aggressive about
2: it. And that convert that hypothetical conversation you just had about, hey, I'm going to make myself vulnerable here is an excellent practice to have when you're in a serious relationship or, you know, or a friendship or any relationship with another person that you want to be healthy and continue for a long time. It's good to say, hey, I'm vulnerable. But researchers have found that people who have those super cautious personality styles and have a hypersensitivity to rejection were way more likely than others to respond to relationship conflicts by doing things like going silent or withdrawing their affection, going cold, doing the whole silent treatment thing. So since we've outlined
4: all of these different components to passive aggressive behavior and all of the different ways that it can manifest and all the different ways it might be rooted inside of us. The next question is, is it just a personality trait that some of us might have or is it a mental health disorder? And I will say going into the research for this episode, I didn't think of passive aggressive behavior as a
2: disorder. Mm -hmm. It was just something irksome that certain people do. And historically, it has been considered a disorder. Well, historically, in the 20th century, I should say. So we should go ahead and lay out there that passive aggressive behavior itself can be an aspect of various mental health conditions, but it is not considered to be its own mental illness, but there is a controversial history that we will dive into right now. So, passive aggressive behavior as a disorder was really first documented during World War Two. It, uh, it was used to describe soldiers who refused to comply with what? Demands. So, there was this 1945 War Department memo where uh, they were basically talking about how, hey, our guys in the armed services aren't being openly defiant, but you know what? We've noticed that they are expressing their anger and their aggression through quote passive measures such as pouting, stubbornness, procrastination, inefficiency, and passive obstructionism. And they just figured that this was an immature and neurotic reaction to routine military stress. And it was in the wake of this memo that this idea of passive aggressive behavior or a passive aggressive personality disorder really earned a foothold in military medical literature. And once it was there, once it had its foothold, the American psychological community took notice and adopted the concept.
4: And initially, they outlined three distinct types of this passive-aggressive disorder, which is passive-dependent, passive-aggressive, and then just outright aggressive, which to me, that was a little confusing about how aggressive could fit under a passive-aggressive <laughs> umbrella. Um, but maybe those psychologists were just being a little passive-aggressive about it. I don't know. So in the 1950s, in preparation for the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which we talk about a lot whenever we talk about uh, mental health issues, the American Psychiatric Association borrowed the military's phrasing and applied diagnostic codes to it and named it Passive-Aggressive Personality Disorder. And it was so fascinating. To me, Caroline, that this whole thing, this entire language that we have, or this set of behaviors, just rooted back to World War II and yeah. soldiers being like, "I really, I, do I have to? No, I don't. I really don't want to do this."
2: <laughs> but not saying that. Oh yeah, no, they're not saying, "Hey, I don't want to do this." They're just like. I'm just gonna pick up my tray real slow. They're pulling, they were
4: pulling a Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd in like a military (laughs) uniform. Yes, please. Dragging his body
2: around. Well, so what happens once this condition is added to the diagnostic statistical manual? is what happens a lot of times when things are added to the DSM. Suddenly, everybody is being labeled with pathologic, quote-unquote, trait disturbances that had to be treated. And this is coming from Christopher Lane at Northwestern University, and I think that he was quoted in a New York Times article. And Lane talks about how the American Psychiatric Association was not simply over-dramatizing routine behaviors. It was relabeling them malfunctions of biology and neurology, the direct in which American psychiatry overall was heading. And according to Lane, they outlawed pouting. And this
4: gets at the controversy over labeling passive aggression as a disorder because it also infers a hidden motive. So some therapists and researchers have raised an eyebrow at that saying, are we kind of just digging a little too much, like looking for something, filling in blanks? on our own to try to like get to this diagnosis. Um, now, there is a side note in the 1960s worth mentioning that some researchers at the time didn't think that women's aggression specifically was worth studying because women were assumed not to be aggressive. So keeping in mind the title of this podcast is Are Women More Passive-Aggressive Due to the Whole Stereotype? That was a, uh, a really fast uh, turnaround from where this entire thing originated, which yeah. it was all focused on men. Soldiers.
2: Yeah. And, you know, women, how could women be aggressive at all? They're so happy cooking. Yes. Yes. Um, well, so then when we fast forward to 1980 and they're working on the DSM-3, this is when research- researchers start thinking, oh, well, wait a second, maybe this passive aggression reflects a specific behavioral response to specific situations rather than a broad personality syndrome. So like Kristen was saying, maybe we're digging too deep and looking for something that's not really there. And of course, in the 80s, we get another gender side note, because at this point, researchers also start wondering whether women are aggressive after all, but just differently after all you know we're physically weaker so maybe they think we just have to develop other strategies to reach our goals and more on that later (laughs) this
0: episode is brought to you by pnc bank who believes some things in life should be boring like banking because boring is safe and responsible level-headed and wise all things you want your bank to be you don't want your bank to be cool or sexy sexy is for 80s hair bands
3: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
4: But moving into 1994 with the dsm 4 the American Psychiatric Association dropped passive-aggressive personality disorder and replaced it with the more watered-down diagnosis of negativistic personality disorder. And why would they do such a
2: thing, Caroline? Well, according to an article in The New York Times about this passive aggression or passive aggressive behavior, was, quote, too narrow to be a full blown diagnosis and not well enough supported by scientific evidence to meet increasingly rigorous standards of definition. So good. Obviously, the work is being done and put in to actually distinguish between quirks however negative, of a personality and actual personality disorders. And so negativistic personality disorder focused really, I mean, on a a lot of the same things that passive aggressive personality disorder did, but it really focused in on moodiness and resistance, again, to external commands. And so with this
4: switch, psychiatrists really begin to distinguish between passive aggressive behavior which most people, Caroline and myself included, display at times, and a passive-aggressive personality, which is that ingrained habitual personality trait. And for one psychological side note, it's also been linked, not so surprisingly, with narcissistic personality disorder, which itself is associated with fear and
2: the decision-making processes, avoidance behaviors at work. Yeah, exactly. And because so the whole thing with narcissistic personality disorder is you're employing your uh, avoidance behaviors because you don't want to look bad. You think you look great and you want to keep looking great and you don't want to do anything that could compromise that. Um, but with... Uh, passive-aggressive behavior, you're avoiding things for a whole kind of different set of reasons. But it is linked to things in the brain. Things like the amygdala, which is key in processing emotions and is linked to fear and pleasure responses both which is interesting because it's like you're afraid of something like a conflict, but you also I wonder, do you also then get pleasure out of avoiding it? But anyway, it's also linked to the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for control and our ability to act in socially appropriate ways. So to me, not being a scientist or a neurologist or anything, it sounds like there's just this sort of tug of war of fear and pleasure and avoidance and conflict all going on. So, if we're talking about the brain, though, then that suggests to me that there might be
4: some nature at work with this whole passive-aggressive thing. But we also mentioned, too, the socialization in terms of anger not being appropriate, particularly for girls, to exhibit directly. So, that suggests some nurture. So, what's going on? Nature versus nurture. Of course, there's a little bit of a shrug when it comes to that. Of like, well, I don't know, because... When it comes to heritability, we're looking at the nature side of things, a 2001 study estimated heritability among school-aged twins to be 50%. That's pretty strong.
2: Yeah, so basically the higher the proportion of heritability, the stronger the resemblance between parents and kids. And so with a 50% heritability proportion, it's not saying that you get 50% of your passive aggression from your parents and 50% from the environment. It's more just saying that, that it's that likely to be inherited, and 50% is actually a pretty high proportion.
4: But of course, there's the environmental factor as well, because a lot of these passive-aggressive behaviors that many books have been written about and that therapists talk about to their clients all of the time, it's traceable to childhood experiences in parenting, which we're going to talk about more in just a minute. So passive-aggressive behavior, even this personality, this pattern could stem from a negative set of experiences linked with things like ineffective, harsh or apathetic parenting, child abuse and neglect. There are, I mean, it's really sad when you start to read about the links between first starting with the relationship between parents Mm -hmm. and then how that impacts the children. Right. And then how the children witness that relationship between the parents and how passive aggressive behavior might be modeled indirectly and directly and how we all absorb those things. And then we grow up to become adults sitting in a podcast studio, realizing <laughs>
2: Our own tendencies. Yeah. And I mean, I was talking to my boyfriend about this and I was saying, you know, I don't specifically remember when I was really young. Like, I don't remember my parents doing anything or saying anything specifically that's passive aggressive. But as he pointed out, rightfully so. Well, if you're this little kid, you don't know any different. You know, you just witness and then have these behaviors modeled for you, but we were reading this chapter in the book, Family Treatment of Personality Disorders, Advances in Clinical Practice, and I did. I thought it was so sad reading about the effect that passive-aggressive behavior thoughts you know speech can have on kids because they are so malleable we don't have to be the people to tell you that kids pick up on everything um, but the authors wrote that quote extreme contradictory parental attitudes and inconsistent training methods um to a degree that's higher than normal basically one parent liking something and the other one doesn't one parent punishing something and the other one rewards it That, as you might imagine, leads to a lot of confusion. The child is confused and he doesn't know what to expect from his environment. And if a kid, a little impressionable kid, doesn't know what to expect... Then he gets even more confused. He gets scared. He feels insecure in his relationships and in his environment, especially when he feels like he's incapable of influencing his own environment consistently. And so the authors talked about how the kid will then go on to develop a heightened sense of emotionality and ends up opting for ambivalence rather than direct behavior.
4: In other words, the passive-aggressive behavior is just passed on down the line. And one of the examples that the authors offered of that kind of contradictory behavior that a parent might display to a child is the verbal expression, I love you, coupled with a nonverbal expression of "get away." Yeah. So, and that also leads to what we mentioned a little while ago in terms of Constantly being on edge, searching for those hidden meanings, trying mm-hmm. to decode what someone is really saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay. So my boyfriend has a deep voice naturally. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is it like this? It it actually. Uh, wait, are you here? No. Oh, no, it was just, it's, it's just me, Caroline. It's, it's me. Okay, that was weird. Um, yeah, he has this really deep voice, but when he's really tired or he just woke up or whatever, it's even deeper and flatter. So he was telling me the story about how um, when he used to go to this one particular coffee shop really early every morning, he would get up really early for work, go straight to the coffee shop, and he'd walk up to the barista and order a coffee. And he'd get this look from the person behind the counter like, are oh, you going to have that attitude with me? So he made it a point every morning when he walked in. To, in his deep voice, say something to the effect of like, hey, I would like a coffee, please. You know, without ending up sounding like he's making fun of the person or being snide. Um, but he has to actively work on that stuff. And so I tell you that long drawn out story to say that there have been plenty of times in our relationship in which I am very secure and happy uh, when he has said something in that like low, tired voice. And I look at him and I'm like, is something wrong? What's going on? Because I just automatically assume that there is some hidden meaning in a lot of things that either he or other people say if they don't appear to be like totally 100 percent chipper.
4: It's as though we're looking for the emoticons, you know, just that <laughs> that assurance that, yes, yes, this is this is me smiling. Even though I put a period there instead of an exclamation point, I'm happy I or know. or just faking it. I know. One interesting finding, though, is that firstborn children are likely candidates to be passive aggressive. And this is coming from psychiatrist Lorna Benjamin talking to The New York Times, who said basically that when the younger siblings are born, that oldest child might suddenly be expected to take on far more extra work, heaping on more responsibility and then over time become gradually resentful because of these parental demands suddenly being placed on them. And also, I mean, less attention and focus being placed solely
2: on them. Yeah. And this really, this really hit home for me. Um, as far as Benjamin's discussing this idea of hostile cooperation, I mean, how can you cooperate? when you're hostile but that's the core of passive aggressive behavior thoughts feelings etc is that you're doing something or you're saying something but you don't believe it you don't believe what's behind it and so benjamin and other researchers have talked about how passive aggressive people are full of unacknowledged contradiction of angry kindness compliant defiance and covert assertiveness. So that's got to be mentally exhausting, right? To constantly have this tug of war between what you're saying and what you're doing. Well, and speaking of the tug of war, a lot of therapists
4: would say that this might come from a parental dynamic where one is dominant and the other is submissive. And the submissive party uses passive aggression in order to deal with the more dominant one while retaining still that dynamic. There's, there are interesting relationships within the relationship between dependence and independence and dominance and submission and Mm -hmm. then how passive aggression sort of weaves a colorful tapestry. Between it all.
2: Yeah, but I mean, if if young children are witnessing their parents exhibit these behaviors, then they essentially learn that volatile or dominant people cannot be directly approached, that they must be dealt with in an indirect passive manner. But it's not all
4: bad, though, right? Because about a decade ago, researchers were saying, well, this could also stem from a quote-unquote positive place, a positive, socially protective instinct, basically saying like it's well-intentioned passive aggression of saying, I really want to keep the peace. I want to just get through the day. Let's not have any confrontation, no conflict. Everything should be copacetic. So I'll just use these more indirect tactics for that.
2: Yeah, but what's unfortunate, it's one thing if you're a grown up trying to be like, ha, 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 no, this Thanksgiving dinner is perfectly fine. Nothing's wrong here. Grandma's not saying anything racist. Um, like that's one thing, but when it's a child watching this stuff and learning that, oh, well, that's how you interact with other human people. Um, then that's where you get the bad problems that send people to therapy to undo years of thinking that passive-aggressive behavior is okay. But, yeah, we want to dive into the gender question, of course, because it's us and we're going to regardless. Um, but it's often assumed that passive-aggressive behavior is more often diagnosed or just exists more often in women and what is up with that? There's a couple different theories behind it. But first of all, we should address what we kind of talked about in our shine theory episode, uh, that there is a gender divide for sure in terms of how we experience and express our anger. And this is coming from uh, Melissa Dittman in a paper for the American Psychological Association in 2003. Um, she cites psychologist Sandra Thomas who asserts that we are all men, women, young, old we are all poorly served by the gender socialization that we grew up with. Uh, Thomas says men have been encouraged to be more overt with their anger. If boys have a conflict on the playground, they act it out with their fists. Girls have been encouraged to keep their anger down. Women usually get the message that anger is unpleasant and unfeminine and therefore their anger may be misdirected in a passive aggressive maneuvers such as sulking or destructive gossip. Now, she also conducted a 1993 study
4: looking at the roots of women's anger, which we discussed in an earlier podcast on women and anger, which would make an excellent follow-up listening to this episode if you haven't heard it already. And it found that the main roots of women's anger, and keep in mind this is the early 90s, curious to see how this would change today, but she identified powerlessness, injustice, and and the irresponsibility of other people, which sounds to me like people not putting their dishes in the dishwasher correctly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I read that and I just went, check, check. Check. Yep. Um, and especially in light of our previous episode on uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, when we mentioned briefly obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and whereas an OCD person uh realizes that their thoughts and actions are illogical, the OCPD person thinks that they are right in a self-righteous manner. It's like, okay, I can see how like injustice fits in with that, like the thing that you judge to be unjust. Uh, and then you, of course, tied in with that, you Judge other people to be irresponsible. But anyway, um, overall, according to psychologist Raymond Giuseppe, there's really not a major difference in men's and women's overall anger scores just in life. But we do experience it differently. So men scored higher
4: on physical and passive aggression, huh, and experiences of impulsivity in dealing with their anger, and they're also likelier to have a revenge motive. Meanwhile, what are women doing? Women were found to be angrier longer, We were found to be more resentful and less likely to express our anger. Not so surprisingly. And women were also likelier to write off a higher number of people intending to never speak to them again because of their anger. So
2: like the eternal silent treatment. Yep. Doing the freeze out. Oh, now of course there's the theory that has been batted around quite a bit regarding that whole issue of powerlessness that Thomas wrote about. It's that power imbalance between men and women that a lot of people assume is at the root of women's resorting to passive-aggressive behavior. And so that chapter in the family treatment book that we referenced earlier says that the passive-aggressive style may be a way for women to avoid the social stigma and rejection that are often associated with women who are seen as challenging or aggressive and advocating for their own needs and wants, a.k.a. the B word. Oh, bitch. Yeah, Yeah, that word. (laughs) Not badass. And so they go on to say that the fact that this disorder may be diagnosed more in women than in men may be an artifact of therapists' immersion in a patriarchal culture rather than a genuine epidemiological gender difference. Oh my gosh, that makes it all seem so inescapable. <laughs> even, even our therapists are, are victims of the patriarchy. Aren't we all? But, you know, I mean, historically people have not been able to agree about whether men or women are more likely to, ve- to develop passive aggressive behavior. Um, and it could have to do with the way that we perceive an action depending on that actor's gender. And in the book, Passive Aggression, a Guide for the Therapist, the Patient, and the Victim. Martin Cantor writes about how uh, some authors, for instance, focus on passive aggression in men or believe that it's found in men more often. Others say that it's more prevalent among women, but uh, he cites one psychiatrist who speculates that the reason for this is that when men display this same passive-aggressive behavior that women do, they're judged as being tough-minded, sticking to their guns, while those characteristics among women are viewed as bitchy or passive-aggressive. Oh, so have we unintentionally then
4: gendered passive-aggression as a female characteristic, even though... Throwing back to the origin of the very diagnosis, which started out solely with a group of men. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? How we completely flipped the script Mm -hmm. on our own. Yeah. Not to say that I'm trying to have some false competition of, like, who's the more passive-aggressive among us? I mean, we all need to uproot passive aggression from our behaviors. But still, it's kind of incredible how quickly that stereotype developed. But, of course, too... Evolutionary biology has got to weigh in with this because we've talked about power imbalance. We've talked about uh, anger, the expression of anger directly and sex differences in physical strength. So what does Evo Bio have to say? Well, it says, well, of course, women are more passive aggressive because it's a strategy. It's the only thing that we really have naturally to use. Because we can't really use our fists and so we also have to make sure that we take care of our babies.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the idea that we have to essentially demoralize our competition to take our sexual rivals out of the picture, but we can't go around punching people in the stomach or in the face. Um, and it's also the idea that, uh, Throughout history, you know, obviously our role in childbearing is critical, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so, you know, our cave women ancestors couldn't exactly risk a physical conflict that could hurt us. So instead, we in our loincloths, uh, turned to shunning fellow cave women. But that in and of itself is almost as bad, if not worse, as fighting. Because if you don't have your network of fellow cave mommies to help you raise your cave babies, then you could potentially die or your baby could suffer. I also at this point am imagining a cave
4: woman making snarky jokes, (laughs) snarky, passive aggressive jokes. And it is kind of funny. Um, But it jumped out to me, though, in one of the paper's putting this putting forth this theory by Tracy Vinecourt and it was published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B in 2013. She wrote, quote, "Human females have a particular proclivity for using indirect aggression." She just lays it out there basically saying like, ladies, this is it. We are. We're the passive aggressive ones because of our intrasexual, competition and we also this is a study too that came up in our slut shaming podcast as well as our shine theory podcast all these things are sort of interacting in a or intersecting I should say in a really interesting kind of way because I mean it really is a slippery slope to sexual policing and slut shaming
2: yeah exactly but I'm gonna go ahead and say that I think that is a bunch of junk yeah because passive aggressive behavior, you know, on its own is is easily uprooted. It is easily combated. And don't worry, we'll arm you with some tactics to uproot it. But, I mean, I think if you look at the way that we're socialized, that has so much to do, you know, either man or woman, male, female, whatever. Um, the way that you're socialized has so much to do with the way that you express anger. And if you are someone, male or female, young or old, who has been told that expressing anger or conflict in a certain way is bad, you're not going to do it that way. You're going to seek that m- more indirect route. And so I have to disagree with the Evo
4: bio. Yeah. I always want to take Evo bio and Evo psych with a grain of salt just because it, it doesn't seem like a lot of those theories can. And I don't think, I think an evolutionary biologist listening would be cringing saying that's not the point to apply it like to our day to day lives today. But if we move into the working world, for instance, today in our 21st century environments out of the caves and into the corporate landscape, research has found that men are just as likely to use Indirect aggression.
2: Yeah, and this is a point that was mentioned in that uh, evolutionary biology theory paper that Kristen was talking about uh, and that echoes a 2012 thesis by a University of South Florida student. Basically, that men and women are just as likely to use passive aggression rather than active, especially in the workplace. Um, they found that workers' and employers' reports of the workers' aggression on the job didn't match up. Compared to supervisors' reports, they say, female employees' self-reports tended to be higher in all eight of the types of aggression in the workplace that were measured, whereas male employees' self-reports were only higher in passive workplace aggression than their supervisors' reports. Male supervisors, on one hand, were found to report more of their subordinates' verbal, direct, active, and interpersonal workplace aggression than female supervisors. And male employees were reported by their immediate supervisors to engage in more active workplace aggression. So I'm just wondering if maybe that women, we think that we're being aggressive by being (laughs) passive-aggressive. And so we just assume that we're higher and outrageously so in all of these different types of aggression. But in actuality, it's either not being picked up on by the supervisors because it is so under the radar or because passive aggressive behavior is so hard to pin down and say like, oh, well, you know, Jennifer did this, this and this. It's it's hard to report. And so it just doesn't get reported.
4: It seems like at this point. The research on passive aggressive behavior, like looking at it in men versus women and how we interpret it is still rather muddy because how we perceive our own behavior is different from how other people perceive our behavior is then influenced by gender, is then influenced by nature. It's complicated, Caroline. It's a little bit complicated, but the good news with all of this is is that the tools for recognizing and dealing with passive-aggressive behavior, both in others and in yourself, is a lot more straightforward, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, it is. And I, I think, you know, I have already started practicing a lot of these things in my own life. And and a big one is to just, whether you are the aggressor or the passive aggressor or the person who is on the receiving end, a big thing is to just identify the behavior, to nail it down. And so if if you are the victim of a passive-aggressive set of behaviors, you need to, like we said, identify the behavior and look for the person's avoidance of conflict at all costs, uh, feeling like you're being put into never-win scenarios, like you're always wrong and she's always the victim, Uh constantly having to placate the person by telling him what he wants to hear, or being subjected to endless strings of complaints that she's just misunderstood. And once you kind of identify that the person you're talking to is using passive aggressive behavior, uh, it's really time to rethink your own. Have you contributed to the conflict? Have your actions escalated the confrontation? But OK, so once you've gotten through that, you really should silence that voice in your head that's telling you that you are responsible for the passive aggressive person's words or actions because, hello, you can't change people. So don't let yourself be manipulated. In the process of that, it's important to stay calm.
4: Don't respond with your own passive aggression because, oh my goodness, two passive aggressive people in a fight, it's, it's that was, maddening. That was my entire life, living with dude roommate. Love him, however. However. Um And also, don't attack the person because that's only going to sort of let the other person win in a way because you're going to come off as that dreaded authority figure. So you disarm the passive aggression with direct honesty and focus on the real issue and recognize that it is hostility and a type of power struggle. And so instead of freaking out that you're in a power struggle, just set limits and boundaries and follow through. It is a little bit, it sounds like, of taking a higher road, stepping up, mm-hmm. owning your own, you know, owning your own actions. You only have control over yourself and doing as much as you can do to sort of
2: guide the other person yeah. through that. Yeah. So, for instance, when I was researching for this episode and I was talking to my boyfriend about it and how I recognized a whole lot of this passive aggressive behavior in myself, um, we talked a lot about it and we've taken to sort of, not checking in. That sounds too like clinical and regimented. But, you know, if I seem off or whatever, for whatever reason, he might check in. Um, but instead of fretting the whole afternoon, if I'm mad at him or whatever or uncomfortable with something, I've asked him to please take me at my word. I'm going to work hard to be direct. And so if you think that something's wrong, sure, ask me about it. Um, but if I say no, nothing's wrong, um you know, take me at my word. We've we've got to kind of hold each other to that directness.
4: Well, and that leads us to the issue of, well, how do you deal with your own passive aggressive behavior? You're establishing new patterns for yourself, challenging yourself to be direct is that when you say you're fine, he can trust you mm-hmm. that you are fine. And you kind of have to uh, own up to that on uh, the other side of that trust relationship. As well. Now, there was um, one study, though, real quickly that I was looking at highlighting how there has been scant research on effective psychotherapy for passive aggression. Um, There is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is commonly used, which is just the general stuff of learning how to monitor your thoughts and recognizing when you're angry Challenging unexamined assumptions about confrontation, identifying when your actions are disconnected from how you actually feel. In other words, just kind of being honest with yourself and staying in touch with what is really going on instead of falling back on the sort of the crutch that passive aggression can become.
2: Yeah. And just sort of that drive to avoid drama. Because when somebody's passive aggressive in a relationship and the other person doesn't know what's going on, that just automatically stirs up a lot of drama. It's so much better to just be direct. And if you're upset, just express why you're upset and and recognize that passive aggressive behavior is a form of self-sabotage. Because when all you're doing is blaming other people for your own failures or shortcomings, you don't get the chance to figure out for yourself what you actually want.
4: And accept that anger isn't bad and confront your fear of conflict. This has been a big thing for me in terms of like, well, how do I process and express my anger? Because I don't want to freak anybody out. But at the same time, I mean, there are certain theories, too, about how like you can use anger to your benefit. And this is one of those examples, because directly and calmly stating why you're upset is okay and far more productive than trying to mask it and skirt around it and sort of funnel your anger into someone else so that they can get angry so that you can then be in the defensive position.
2: Right. I know. It's so twisted. But speaking of twisted, part of your therapy or part of your own self-discovery might just be revisiting those childhood scenarios and realizing that your relationship with your parents or their relationship with each other does not have to be the model for all of your relationships, whether that's with a partner or an authority figure or a friend or whomever. I mean, I my parents definitely... I mean, if you're going to talk about somebody being dominant and somebody being submissive and the other person being passive aggressive and the other person being direct, I mean, they definitely trade off. They're like pros at trading off one person being passive aggressive in response to the other person's, like, domineering behavior in one arena, and then it switches in another arena. Um, But ah, it's so refreshing to just repeat to yourself that you don't have to be your parents and that you can kind of dig down into your own psyche, whether that's just by yourself again, or just, you know, with a therapist and uncover the roots of this behavior and set your own new healthy patterns.
4: And maybe for women listening too, reminding ourselves that a stereotype is a stereotype. We don't This doesn't have to be our weapon of choice. And for men listening who have women in their lives, not, you know, remembering that, keeping that in mind as well, in order to recognize their own passive aggressive behavior. Because I know some fellas whom I hold very dear to my heart and I see them being passive aggressive as much as I can be passive aggressive. So what do you think, though, Caroline, to wrap it up? What do you think about that ultimate question, though, of are women more Passive aggressive or is the stereotype simply a product of our gendered interpretation of passive aggressive behavior?
2: I think it has way more to do with the, the gendered interpretation of, of anger and expressing it and living through it. I mean, I think that, you know, it really goes back to the way that we are socialized and the way that we've been socialized for centuries to, to act a certain way. I mean, it wasn't until the late 20th century that people started going, oh, maybe women do get angry. (laughs) Well,
4: a light bulb just went off in my head, Caroline. So maybe it's not that women are more passive aggressive, but that it is more socially acceptable, whether we like it or not, for women to be passive aggressive Mm -hmm. versus being outright angry, because we would expect that more of guys, because from the time that they are little boys, a lot of times they're socialized to Mm -hmm. solve conflicts Directly, And sometimes with their fists and with their anger. Yeah. And girls are told to be
2: prim. So I think, clean. well, yeah. And I think whoever you are, male, female, masculine, feminine, opting to be honest and direct uh, while being calm, <laughs> uh, I think is the better answer when, when it comes to anger and upset feelings and drama and avoiding drama. Um, I think being direct can only benefit relationships.
0: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated, PNC Bank a National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect, whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start
1: planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
4: And now we have a direct request for you, dear listeners. We want to hear from you about passive aggression. Did this ring as many bells for you as it did for Caroline and me? Whether it's in your own life or in a relationship or in someone who is in your life, a boss, a boyfriend. A mother, a father. <laughs> Let us know. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuff Podcast or message us on Facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share
2: with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Sadiqa in response to our Kink Week episodes. This one is on BDSM specifically. She says, Hi, ladies. I wanted to say thanks for all of the awesome content you create. As a lady of color within the BDSM community, it felt really nice to have someone not only acknowledge women of color's involvement, but also race play. It also felt nice to hear about other feminists who are part of the kink community. After I fully accepted that I'm a submissive, I felt an ache leave me, and allowed me to be better as a person. I became more open-minded and empathetic. Once again, thank you for your work. Y'all rock. And so do you. Thanks for your letter. Well, I have a letter here from Sunny about
4: our Kinkweek episode on the professional dominatrix and she writes i really enjoyed kink week on stuff mom never told you i think it's really easy particularly for vanilla people who aren't involved in the lifestyle and world to turn kink into something to joke about or awkwardly tiptoe around or even outright judge i really appreciate the effort to take the subject seriously and to keep an open mind about it all As for the question you posed about how people in the lifestyle feel about celebrities and media co-opting and reappropriating our subculture personally, strong emphasis on personally, I think that when it's done to honestly celebrate sexuality and encourage creativity and exploration rather than purely for sensationalism and titillation, I'm fine with it. I'm, of course, ecstatic when it's also done well. I'm really only truly offended when the lifestyle is treated as complete fiction, where literally none of our culture or rules or practices are respected, and when it's treated like a joke. No one wants to be someone's punchline or caricature, where you're treated as more of a stereotype than a person. Too often, when we're depicted in the media, kinksters are portrayed as either monsters or victims. We're seen as less than human. We're the crazy ex who is psycho nuts, but a wild ride and one hell of a one-up sex story. Or we're the damaged victim who gets raped or abused because we wandered too far from the normative path and into deviant stuff we shouldn't have and needs to be saved or cured. Or we're the dead body left humiliated and strung up like a cross between bad gallows, humor, and leftover holiday decorations in the middle of a crime scene. Again, we'd never allow artists to get away with that when portraying other types of people. What makes it okay when they do it to us? But... When the portrayal is done honestly, with respect and research, it feels validating. Even though it's not me they're depicting, from a TV screen or movie screen or computer screen far, far away, it feels like being seen. And having talked to my friends, I know the more the kinksters are honestly portrayed in the media, the easier it is for vanilla people to understand that their preconceived notions may not be the whole truth. The more visible we get to be in the media as who we really are, rather than what too many people think we are, or want us to be, the better. Anyway, thank you for the podcast. As always, you treated your subjects with respect and produced wonderful results. Well, thank you for the wonderful letter, Sunny. And keep the letters coming. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to all of the research on passive-aggressive behavior so you can learn more like Caroline and me, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
0: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your
1: trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway.